0: And uh, our kids at this time can be dismissed for Children's Church, so kids, you are free to go. And for those who are sticking around, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Hey, it was good to see, I don't know if you noticed, good to have our brother Dave Hawkins Tickling the drums this morning. Good to have you, brother. It's good to be together. Before we get into Genesis 3, I want to give an announcement about next Sunday. Okay, give you a heads up about next Sunday. Um, for the last, I don't know how many years, I think four or five years now, um, on the last Sunday of every year, we've been taking time in our worship service to. Uh, share testimonies with one another of God's faithfulness to us and to our families and even to our church over the last year we've we've been doing that on the last Sunday of every year for the last several years to bring our year as a as a church family to a close and we're going to do that again this year and um, I share it now because I want to want to encourage you if you're going to be around next Sunday um, to to consider, Sharing uh, a brief testimony of God's faithfulness to you over the last year. And by brief, we're thinking maybe, you know, three to five minutes, somewhere in there. Um, a, a three to five minute testimony of how God has shown his faithfulness to you throughout 2021. And uh, I want to encourage you to consider, consider sharing and, and then come ready if you want. To, to do that with the rest of the church. We usually have about a, I don't know, 15-minute sermon or so, and then we open the floor to uh, to the church and and give you the opportunity to testify to the Lord's faithfulness over the last year. And it's been a really encouraging practice. It's encouraged me every year, hopefully uh, you as well, if you've been around for that. And um, so if you're going to be here, consider doing that. Also, if if you're not going to be able to make it uh, to the physical gathering next Sunday, but you'd still like to share with the church, I know that might apply to a few as well, um, then you are welcome to send a testimony of God's faithfulness to me this week, and I will gladly read it on your behalf. Um, so if, if anyone's at home and you're not going to be able to be here, or if you know you're going to be out, but you want to share with the church, then uh, you can send that to me and I will read it on your behalf. Um, but I do want to, you know, encourage you to consider sharing, even if it's out of your comfort zone, and it probably is for, you know, 85% of the people that actually get up and, and do share every year. Uh, even if it's out of your comfort zone, come come ready to encourage and to be encouraged as we reflect on God's faithfulness uh, over the last year together next Sunday. Okay, so that's next Sunday morning here in the worship service. Uh, think about it. And uh, let's look forward to it because it's going to be a good morning. That's next Sunday. This morning, though, I want to look uh, together at something uh, not so positive, maybe you could say. Uh, I want to, I for us to look at the point where the world went wrong and the reasons that it needs a savior. So we... we we read about this in Genesis chapter 3, and so let's get Genesis 3 in front of our faces somehow, and um, let's get it before our eyes, and let's open our ears and our hearts to hear God's word together in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 24. We're going to look at the whole chapter, hear it together. So let's stand as we normally do, let's stand to hear God's word. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word, and you may be seated. This morning, I want for us to give some very Christmassy meditation to the question of why the world is so messed up and why it needs the Savior who's coming, we celebrate every year at this time. So the title of this morning's sermon is "Why the World is Broken and Why It Needs a Savior." And uh, just you know, full disclosure here, I intend this sermon to be as devoid of trite, cotton candy, and roasted chestnut sentimentality as possible. In this sermon, I want to help us see and meditate on the dark conditions of this life that Christ and his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection bring light to and into. I want to help us make sense of the reasons we live in this world uh, in, in such broken conditions as we do. And why the life we live in this world can be so difficult and painful. And I want to reflect on the reasons why the coming of Jesus into the world as one of us is such very good news. And I'd like to do that for uh, really three big reasons. First, because these are the subjects essentially of Genesis chapter 3. And we're just working our way through the book of Genesis every Sunday morning together. So that's first. Second, because of, uh, because contrary to the, the truckloads of therapeutic sappiness that are dumped upon us around this time every year, culturally speaking, this is not the most wonderful time of the year for many people in the world and in the church. And in many cases, this is not because they are seeing the world and the state of their lives wrongly. It's because they are seeing things accurately. And I want to encourage those people and help those people especially so that they don't feel guilty for their struggles this time of year especially and can make better sense of them and can more fully set their hopes on Christ alone this Christmas season. So that's second. Then thirdly, I want to focus on the reasons uh, according to Scripture that the world is so messed up and where it went wrong in the first place because these things are vital and essential for appreciating the meaning and the importance of the coming of the Son of God into the world as a human being some 2,000 years ago. You'll never understand nor appreciate the real meaning and significance of Christmas if you don't understand why it was needed in the first place. So with these things in mind, let's, let's turn our attention here to Genesis 3, the text of Genesis 3. Uh, this chapter is really the instructive account of the point when God's created world, his good created world was corrupted and where it first took a turn for the worse. Genesis 3 shows us the reasons the world as we know it today is filled, so filled with sin and suffering and conflict and mortality. It explains why life in this world is now so difficult and why it's so full of trouble. Uh, it tells us where man's relationship with God went wrong. Where our fellowship with God was first broken it helps us make sense of our own brokenness, both physical brokenness and spiritual, moral brokenness. It explains why we experience pain and suffering and death in this life. It explains why we sin and why doing what God says is so hard and why we're so prone to do what he says we ought not to do. Genesis 3 also explains why humans often live in conflict and in opposition with one another. It explains even why marriage, the most intimate of human relationships, is so hard and often filled with trouble and conflict. Genesis 3 explains why work is so difficult. It explains why something so good as childbearing is so painful. It explains why physical death is so certain for each one of us. Nearly every question Nearly every question about the origins of sin and suffering and death and about the reasons life on the earth in this world can be so hard and frustrating and disappointing and painful can all be traced back eventually to the text of Genesis three and the events that it records. If you ever struggle with the question of you know why why this world and and why life in this world is so dysfunctional and and otherwise messed up. Or, or this Christmas, if you're having a hard time understanding what the big deal is about a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger is, or or you're having difficulty finding joy in his coming, or if you have the privilege of helping someone else sort through these very issues in the near future, let me give you an invitation uh, to turn your attention and give some attention this Christmas to the events of Genesis 3. Answers to all these questions and, and instruction for our lives uh, as we wrestle with these questions can most definitely be found here. So let's see for ourselves here in this chapter why the world is so broken and why it so desperately needs a Savior. And I think we can find at least five big answers, five big reasons here in Genesis 3. So let's start with point one. The world is broken and needs a Savior because of the deception of a serpent. Because of the deception of a serpent. If you look at verse one here, verse one introduces us to one referred to as the serpent the snake or perhaps something like the dragon an actual serpent-like creature but one who is obviously more than a mere animal and in light of the whole of scripture it's clear that the serpent here in genesis 3 is the is the great dragon of revelation chapter 12 verse 9 the one we know as satan or the devil He's referred to in Revelation 20 and verse 2 as the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. This is God's great archenemy. This is the chief and leader of those angels who rebelled against God after having been created by him to serve and glorify him in the heavenly realm. This is the one who apparently led that rebellion. He was evicted from his heavenly existence with God. He was consigned, you know, irreversibly by God to a state of rebellion against him, sentenced to eternal judgment, and who now is completely opposed to God and does everything in his power to thwart the purposes of God for his people and for history. Here in Genesis 3, we're, we're introduced to God's great enemy, the devil, who following his rebellion in heaven, enters the realm of God's physical creation. And he either transforms himself into a, into a serpent, into a snake, transforms himself into a, you know, the, the form, the appearance of a serpent, or he takes control over one to corrupt God's good world. Either way, as others have said, the snake is merely the mouthpiece for the devil here. And he's entered God's creation in order to bring separation between God and man. And to bring separation between God and man by leading mankind into a rebellion against its creator with him. To lead them into the same rebellion that he is engaged in. And the way he does this, you see it in the text, the way he does it is twofold. He questions God's word on the one hand. And he casts doubt on God's goodness on the other. And as he does that, he's sowing seeds. You, you can see him here. Sowing seeds of distrust in the hearts of the first woman and the first man toward God in order to lure them into a life of independence from God and bring down God's plans to fill a world with people who are glorifying and enjoying him forever. And though we're going to come back to this passage again after the first of the year, for now I, I just want to point out, even though it could go without saying I think, I want to point out that he knows exactly what he's doing. There's actually a play on words going on here in Genesis 3 uh, in verse 1, and uh, between verse 1 and verse 25 of chapter 2, play on words going going on there when Moses refers to the serpent in verse 1 here as being more crafty than any other beast of the field. The Hebrew word for crafty sounds a good deal like the Hebrew uh, description of the man and the woman in verse 25 of chapter 2 is naked. Crafty is the Hebrew word arum or arum. Naked is the Hebrew word arumim. The idea is that in their innocence, they're also ignorant of where the traps are. Lay in this situation. Whereas he may be evil, totally evil, in fact, but he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows where this deception is going to lead, as he does to this day. He knows what he's doing and he's doing it intentionally. And so, while the point may be obvious to some, I think it's important to point out that one of the main reasons that the world is such a mess. One of the main reasons that the world is in such need of a savior, of a rescuer, is because there is a snake on the loose in God's world. There's a snake on the loose, and, and to this day he continues to wreak havoc in God's world and bring distance between man and God. And, and sometimes he looks like a slithering, deceptive snake, while other times he looks like an angry, fire-breathing dragon. As a deceiving snake, he seeks to spread lies about God while disguising himself as a messenger of truth. Scripture says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he, he disguises himself as an angel of light, a messenger of revelation from God. He slithers around today, blinding people from seeing the glory of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he blinds them to the beauty of Jesus to keep them from trusting him as the saving Lord of sinners. He slithers around today, putting temptations in front of God's people to lead them into sin, Then, in other times as an angry dragon, he, he seeks to bring physical harm upon God's People upon his redeemed people especially, his church, the church of Christ Peter talks about in, in 1 Peter 5 that the, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour or to overwhelm and the idea is to overwhelm with suffering so that they don't turn to God and don't cast their cares on the God who cares for them. As a dragon, he seeks to hinder missions efforts. We see that in Scripture. Sometimes he stands in the way of, of the gospel going out to new places in order to keep the word of Christ from getting out to sinners throughout the world. He does that as well. He can bring sickness on people, and he does. He can attack in various ways, and he does. As a snake, he deceives, and as a dragon, he attacks. Let's not lose sight of the fact that one, the, that one great reason the world is so broken and needs a Savior is because there is a coordinated, focused, relentless, demonic effort to bring as much harm upon God's people as possible and to keep as many sinners away from God as possible. And it's an effort that is led by the snake that's introduced to us here in Genesis 3. Whenever you find that there are troubles in this life and, and troubling events in this world that, that seem to, you know, defy purely natural explanations, perhaps this could be why. Because maybe there's not purely natural explanations. There's a snake on the loose. Secondly, the world is broken and needs a savior because of the rebellion of man against God. The rebellion of man against God the, you see it in verses 1 to 5 really here in chapter 3 and it's achieved in verse 6 the goal is in verses 1 through 5 the, the fulfillment of the goal the achievement of the goal is in verse 6 the goal of the serpent's deception is to lead them into sin that's obvious after casting questions into the heart of the first woman concerning the actual words of God, what exactly God had commanded and what he didn't. And then casting suspicions upon the goodness of God and calling into question whether God's intentions in issuing the command to Adam and Eve to enjoy every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after planting the idea in the mind of the woman that she could actually become an equal with God, Get on God's level, see eye to eye with Him, if she only exercised her will independently of him After planting the idea in her mind that God was trying to keep her under his thumb and that she could gain Godlike independence if she just went her own way, all things that he continues to do to this day, by the way. Having set in the hook, in verse six, the devil reels the woman and so it says so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was de- to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it's interesting how god here describes the process by which eve was lured into violating the command of god to to avoid eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the process, you know, the 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 destructive kind of uh, you know disintegrating process that goes on here. She first sees that it's good for food, that it meets a real need in her life. Ooh, I could eat that, and it it would satisfy my hunger. She then noticed that it was a delight to the eyes. That wow, it's also beautiful, and it looks delicious and tasty food. You know, it doesn't just feed me; it feels good too. And then she came to understand that there was a kind of knowledge to be gained and an independence to be gained from eating of the fruit. She believed that it would improve her state, that it would add to her life and not take away from her life. So Derek Kidner, Old Testament commentator, says, Eve listened to, the, to a creature instead of the creator, followed her impressions against her instructions, and made self-fulfillment her goal. She thought that there was something outside of what God had given her to enjoy, uh, outside of what God had given her to experience. That, that the grass was greener on the other side of the proverbial fence that there was something outside of God's intentions and instructions for her that would increase her joy and add to her experience in this world she thought that she knew better than God she thought that he was keeping her down she, she evaluated the, the serpent's words as if God's prior words had never been spoken and in this act of pure prideful independence she sought to break free of God's authority over her. And then Adam, who apparently, the text says, apparently was right there by her the whole time. Right there by her, he goes along with her. And, and, and truly, his act of disobedience was even more brazen and, and willful than his wife's. Uh, I remember reading uh, something on this from uh, James Montgomery Boyce. I think it was in preparation for one of our recent theology classes. Uh, where he's reflecting on the words of 1 Timothy 2.14, which says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And he makes the point there that Adam's sin was an act of pure rebellion against God that he didn't even need to be deceived to do it. He did it just because he wanted to, whereas Eve at least had to be tricked into doing it, had to be deceived into doing it, which could have at least something to do with the fact that it is Adam who, you notice in Scripture, is held responsible for leading mankind into sin and death and not his wife. Because he's, he's not even being tricked into this. He's doing it flat out because he wants to, because he can. But you got to notice, you've got to see that verse 6 like verse 6 Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 underline it circle it whatever you got to do to to highlight it and and see it as the point this is the point where all of history where the whole world goes wrong this is it this is the first domino to fall and from this point on bad things start to happen and they start to happen quickly if you just read through Genesis Physical death is traced right back to this moment. Uh, in the next chapter, people are already killing each other. Uh, things just go crazy from here. Estrangement from God starts here, as we see in the rest of the chapter. Throughout the rest of the Bible, we see that from this point on, everyone who enters the world enters with a, 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 what we could call a natural bent towards sin. Everyone from this point on is going to be born sinful and alienated from God and in need of redemption. We see from here in scripture that every human being from this point on is also born under the judgment of God and is born opposed to God from the heart. It is, it is impossible to underestimate the damage and destruction that has been brought upon the world because of this single moment. So we could say that sin is another major reason that the world is so broken and in such desperate need of a Savior. And, and that's not just Eve's sin that we're talking about. It's not just Adam's sin we're talking about this is us too this is our sin we do exactly what adam and eve did in this chapter we do it too everyone does everyone has even those who have been saved by christ continue to do this very thing question god's word question god's goodness this is all of us, but this is where it starts. People have been seeking to break free from the wise and loving authority of the Creator ever since this moment. And that's one major reason why the world is so broken, and why it needs a Savior. And it's one of the main problems, by the way, that the baby born in Bethlehem has come to address. This is what he comes to address. Thirdly, the world is broken and needs a savior because of the refusal of people to take responsibility for their sins. The refusal of people to take responsibility for their sins. We see this in verses 7 to 13. Uh, and you, you notice beginning in verse 7, we start to see the consequences of sin unfold and so if you want a simple outline of genesis 3 simple outline of the chapter would see verses 1 to 6 as having to do with the first temptation and sin and then verse 7 to the end of the chapter has to do with the consequences of sin so first few verses sin and temptation last you know two thirds of the chapter is the consequences of their sin but what we see in verses 7 to 13 is that one of the one of the effects of sin uh, one of the consequences, the results of sin, is more sin. <laughs> Imagine that one of the one of the effects of sin is the sinful refusal to fess up to it. The sinful refusal to seek god's forgiveness for it. Sin leads to spiritual blindness regarding one's guilt and culpability before God. Sin leads to blame shifting. We see that here. And the prideful pretending that leads you to believe that you've done nothing wrong, that it's actually someone else's fault. It leads you to ignoring your sins, to excusing your sins, to pretending that there are no sins on your part that need to be addressed or judged or forgiven. And we see that in verses 7 to 13, don't we? Adam and Eve disobey God, and then they immediately realize that they're naked, which means they, they, they have this strong sense immediately that they are exposed, that that they are not acceptable to God, that they are not acceptable to one another. They have this sense that they're dirty, this sense that they shouldn't be accepted and shouldn't be welcomed by God and one another. And so what do they do? What do they do? It's a beautiful scene. They fall on their faces and they confess their sins to God immediately. Oh, Lord, what have we done? We've sinned against you. We've rebelled against your command. Please forgive us. We, we screwed up. We, we failed. We fell short of your glory and your instructions. Forgive us. Save us now. Do they do that? Run to God and admit to him what they've done. Ask for his help ask for his cleansing, ask for his forgiveness, openly acknowledge that they've done wrong to God and to one another. Do they do any of that? They do none of that. Instead, what do they do? They cover themselves with fig leaves. Such a, like a silly scene, you know? They've sinned right there with the other. Everything's known by the other. Their creator knows everything that they've done. And they're covering themselves with fig leaves. They immediately turn inward. They immediately become consumed with their image. They immediately become consumed with self-preservation. And by the way, this is an act of self-atonement. They're trying to cover their own sins, And then they hide from God. They try to cover their sinfulness themselves and they run from the one that they've sinned against. Makes perfect sense. Sin, sin makes you stupid. That's just what it does. It just makes you dumb. This is dumb. This is crazy. But it's what they do. They try to cover their sinfulness themselves, and then they run from the one they've sinned against. And then, when questioned by God about what they had done, you know, what is this thing you have done? He, he asked both of them what they've done. They couldn't. The, the two of them couldn't be any quicker to blame someone else for their sin. Verse 12, the man said, the woman that you gave to be with me. I mean, he's, he's really, you know, hoping one of these sticks. Either it's God's fault or it's the woman's fault. The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So then he turns to the woman, what have you done? The woman says, verse 13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Pretty much sums up the state of the world, doesn't it? State of world affairs. Everyone with any discernment can look at the world and admit that it's a mess. We all know that it is. Everyone knows that the world is really messed up. But so few of us are saying what G.K. Chesterton said reportedly in the early 1900s in, in response to a question that was sent out to a number of prominent authors of that time by an editor with the Times of London, which asked, what's wrong with the world today? Hoping for a response from all these authors, you know, so that everyone could opine on the state of world affairs. What's wrong with the world today? The story goes that Chesterton responded with a four-word essay, which read, Dear Sir, I am. Dear Sir, I am. What is wrong with the world today? I am. We don't think like that. No, we all think the biggest problems in the world are outside of us. It's all outside of us. It's the government, it's the this dumb virus, it's climate change, it's racism, it's the media, it's guns, it's capitalism, it's socialism, it's Fox News, it's CNN, it's our Republicans, our Democrats, liberals, conservatives. The problem is our laws, it's our past, it's our institutions, it's our power structures. I'd say we're all pretty skilled blame shifters. wonder where we get that. It's both an inherited and a developed skill. But it comes re- very naturally. You want to know why the world is so broken and needs a savior? It's because the world is lost in sin and no one wants to take responsibility for that. It's because we're all sinners, but we think that the sins of others are far more damaging and far more destructive and far more urgent to deal with than our own. It's because we all think the greatest problems in the world are outside of us when the greatest problem in the world is within us, in our sinful hearts, the world is a mess because to this day, the world is trying to atone for its own sins while running away from the one that it sinned against, effectively cutting ourselves off from God's solution to this great problem which is offered to us in Christ and in the gospel. The world is broken and needs a savior because of the refusal of people to take responsibility for their sins. That's third and fourth, the world is broken and needs a Savior because God has pronounced a curse upon the whole creation because of sin. See that in verses 14 to 19, God responds to the three rebellious creatures standing or slithering before him. And he pronounces a judgment oracle upon them all and truly upon the whole created order because of them and because of their sin. Verses 14 and 15, God pronounces judgment on the serpent. You see that there? He tells him that he's going to crawl on his belly the rest of his days on the earth. He tells him that he will eat the dust all the days of his life, which I think is probably more of a figure of speech which visualizes his eventual humiliation and defeat tells the serpent that there will be hostility between him and Eve and specifically between his descendants, which is, I think, those who follow in his rebellion, and her descendants, which is those who ultimately don't follow in his rebellion. And he tells the serpent that one of her future descendants, one of Eve's future descendants, will eventually step on his head and kill him. The dragon will be slayed in the end. And we're going to talk more about this on, on Christmas Eve. The, the head of the snake will be bruised. It will be crushed, which means God will defeat him through one of Eve's future descendants. He will the, the serpent will eventually suffer the same judgment that he was hoping that Adam and Eve would suffer. He's going to suffer it too. Verse 15 is what's called, by the way, the Proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium, which means the first preaching of the gospel. This is the first hint of the gospel in scripture. Serpent will be crushed. The dragon will be slayed by one of the descendants of the woman. Then in verse 16, God pronounces judgment upon the woman and he tells her that the pain of bringing children into the world is going to be increased exponentially exponentially tells her that her relationship with her husband is going to be tainted both by a desire on her part to rule over him and by his harsh and heavy-handed leadership over her in return uh it's a very tragic statement there in verse 16 you know, saying that the marriage relationship will from this point on be difficult and painful and will suffer conflict and selfishness and pride on both the part of the husband and the wife. You're married, and you ever wonder, why is marriage so hard? This is why. Even marriage is under a curse. Then in verses 17 to 19, God pronounces judgment upon the man. Turns from the serpent to the woman, now to the man. And tells him that the ground that he's been created to work and cultivate will now be hard and frustrating and full of challenges and problems. Tells him that he will have to work himself hard until the day that he dies, that he's not going to experience a pain-free day of life on this earth ever again. So God pronounces a curse upon the serpent. He pronounces a curse upon the woman. He, ap- he pronounces a curse upon the man and essentially upon the rest of creation in these words. The way Paul describes this curse in Romans 8 is as God subjecting the creation to futility. Sentencing, handing over the whole creation, the whole created order to emptiness and struggle and frustration and pain. God responds to their sin by cursing the world. You notice that the, the great lie that ultimately sunk the hook into Eve's cheek, so to speak, if we were to picture her as a fish, and led her finally into sin, the lie that the serpent speaks to her back in verse 4 of Genesis 3. Do you remember what it is? Or see what it is? You will not surely die. You ain't gonna die. The lie was that there is no punishment for disobedience. No, no punishment here. You'll be fine. That's what ultimately made Eve feel safe to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here God is responding to that lie directly and is reaffirming the warning that he gave to Adam back in chapter 2 and verse 17, which said, in the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die as if to say to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man, not only is there a punishment for disobedience, but the punishment is far worse and much wider reaching than you ever imagined. So then the brokenness of this world is not a mere passive consequence of man's sin. It's a direct consequence of the active judgment of God upon sin. God has cursed this place because of sin. The world is broken not merely because man broke it, but because God did as an act of judgment upon man because of sin. And he broke it. He did it to let every subsequent generation know, along with the serpent and along with Eve and along with Adam, that sin is bad and that we desperately need a savior. That's forth, And finally, the world is broken and needs a Savior because our sins have separated us from God. And this may be the saddest part of the chapter. At The very end, the last few verses, we see because of their sin, starting in verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God kicks the man and the woman and all their descendants out of his dwelling place. That's what's going on here at the end of Genesis 3. He's kicking them out of his dwelling place. Banishing them from his presence on the earth. And ensuring that they cannot come back without suffering the punishment of death. The reason for that is because God is too holy to live in the presence of sinners. He's too righteous to let sinners get off the hook for their sins. He's too just not to punish them for what they've done. And his word is too right and too good and too true and too trustworthy to let sinners violate it without consequence. And truly, this is the bottom line reason the world is so broken. It's, it's broken because it's alienated from God. People are alienated from God. There is enmity between God and man. God and man, and we're speaking collectively here, are not on good terms. And because we can't come back to the presence of God on our own terms. Do you notice that? We don't get to just make up our mind and return on our own in our own shoes, in our own righteousness. That's not how it works. God is going to have to come to us on his terms if this relationship is ever going to be restored, which is exactly what he has done in the person of Christ. He doesn't call us to come back to him. He comes back to us. You want to know why? coming of Jesus into the world was and is such a big deal. It's a big deal because he's the only one who can step on the head of the serpent. He's the only one who won't be led astray by the serpent. He's the only one who can slay the dragon. He's the only one who can reconcile God and man to one another. He's the only one who can make it safe to admit that you are a sinner and confess your sins to God and not try to atone for them yourself and then run away from the God you've sinned against. He's the only one who can suffer under the judgment that sin deserves on behalf of those who deserve that judgment. He's the only one who can bring life and peace where there is now hostility and conflict and suffering and death. He's the only one who can make all things right once again. He's the only one who can bring us back to God's paradise as God originally intended and these are the things that he has done and is doing and will do in the end for all who trust in him as their saving Lord and look to him for the forgiveness of their sins but the truth is you can't appreciate any of that you can't appreciate the magnitude of these things until you reckon with the fact that this world is broken and is in desperate need for a Savior. So my hope for you, for me, for us this Christmas, um, is not first and foremost that we all have ourselves a merry little Christmas. Some of you, I hope you do, some of you won't. And that's okay. Because this world is jacked up. It's messed up. And we're all living in it. We're not back to paradise yet, right? Things are not made right again yet. They're not restored yet. They're not made new yet. So if you're inclined to just, you know, want to have this merry little Christmas, okay, but at least give a little not merry re- reflection on the need for Christmas this year. And if you're not going to have one, if you don't have one, if you're not having one, just know. It's because we're waiting for the serpent slayer to come again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so honestly and truly and accurately and insightfully about us and about our world and about the the hard things in this life we all experience. Thank you for the way that you show us so truthfully why this world is broken, why it needs a savior, why God coming to the earth as a man is good news. We pray that you'd help us reflect on the things we've looked at this morning. Help us reflect on them deeply so that we could Celebrate the coming of Christ sincerely and look forward to his return joyfully and with great hope. Lord, help us to make sense. Use this passage, use what we've talked about and seen to help us make sense of our struggles, make sense of our pain, and more than that, to look forward to the return of our King who's coming to crush the serpent and make all things right and all things new. May we hope in him, hope in him alone. May you help us to do that in Jesus' name, amen.